Good morning, everyone. Poppy is off today. We want to get started with our five things to know for this Wednesday, March 29th, 2023. New body camera footage shows what two hero national police officers confronted when they took down the school shooter who killed six people. <coughs> the White House says President Biden has called to thank them. Of course, the big question that remains this morning is how did this shooter get so many guns? Also, former Vice President Mike Pence has now been ordered to testify in the Justice Department's January 6th investigation. The Pence team says that they are evaluating the judge's ruling and whether they will appeal. We'll have all of that plus this. Adnan Syed's freedom in jeopardy this morning. An appeals court has reinstated his murder conviction and ordered a new hearing. Syed was the subject of the Serial Podcast. The Serial Podcast. Also today, former Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz set to testify on Capitol Hill. Senator Bernie Sanders and others will question Schultz about Starbucks' alleged efforts to block unions. And meet the NBA's 2023 Hall of Fame class. ESPN reports that Dwayne Wade, Dirk Nowitzki, and WNBA legend Becky Hammond are among the inductees. Cena This Morning starts right now. saw the, the video that is what police officers should do yeah and this is the, the just i mean the kind of jobs the dangerous nature of the job well it shows you the intense pressure of it and you know also in comparison with what happened in uvalde the response is so much of the story and, and what happens there yeah the difference this is again how police officers should react it's, they shouldn't be in these situations but that's, they did the right thing yeah. all of them we're talking about what happened in Nashville, of course. We've seen new body cam footage that has now been released by police officers showing what happened when two officers entered the school that day as the shooter was there, killing ultimately three nine-year-olds, three adults. This morning, there are major questions that we are learning about this school shooting, though, including how a person who was being treated for an emotional disorder was able to legally buy seven guns before entering the school and murdering those three children and the three staff members at this private Christian school in Nashville. This is the new harrowing police video that Don and I were just talking about, this body cam video. It shows officers rushing in and confronting the shooter. A warning now, though, you may find this video disturbing. There you go, second floor. Go, go stairs, go stairs, go. Go, 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 Push it, LPVO. Go right. Move, move. We're going to show you more of that video. We'll talk more about the police response. We're also learning more about the students, the nine-year-olds, and the educators who were murdered, including the school's custodian, Mike Hill. We're told that students called him Big Mike. He had 14 grandkids, seven children, his family says that he loved spending time with them, that he had a passion for cooking. Hallie Scruggs was one of the three nine-year-olds who was gunned down. Her dad is the pastor of the church that runs the school. Evelyn Dickhouse's family says that their hearts are, quote, completely broken. They say Evelyn was a shining light, and they cannot believe that this has happened to their daughter. CNN's Carlos Suarez is live in Nashville. Carlos, obviously, we are going to definitely focus on the victims and learning more about them, but we're also learning more about the shooter themselves, the weapons that were purchased, the writings that were left behind, which the mayor told us yesterday they were going to be releasing. What did we learn? 
Yeah, that's exactly right. Caitlin, good morning. We're learning a lot more about the uh, 28-year-old shooter. Uh, the chief of police out here said uh, that the shooter was being treated for an emotional disorder. And this morning, the New York Times is reporting that an instructor at NOSI College, that's an art and design school here in Nashville, reported that about six years ago when the shooter was a student uh, in her class, uh, the shooter had some sort of emotional breakdown, having trouble setting up some sort of online account. That development is coming as the city of Nashville here gets ready to remember the victims. New details about the firearms used by the shooter who opened fire inside the Covenant School in Nashville. Authorities say the shooter legally purchased seven firearms from October 2020 through June of 2022. The shooter carried three of those firearms when entering the school. An AR-15, a 9mm pistol caliber carbine, and a 9mm handgun. One of the seven guns is unaccounted for as of Tuesday, according to police. She was under care, doctor's care, for an emotional disorder. Uh, law enforcement knew nothing about the treatment she was receiving, but her parents felt that she uh, should not own weapons. They were under the impression that was when she sold the one weapon that she did not own anymore. As it turned out, she had been hiding uh, several weapons uh, within the house. The Nashville police releasing body camera video from two officers who entered the school and eventually killed the shooter. Let's go! Metro police! Officers are seen searching through the school, going room to room, looking for the shooter. It's upstairs. It sounds like it's upstairs. The officers then run to the second floor where gunshots can be heard in the distance and shoot at and kill the shooter less than four minutes after entering the school. The body camera video was released as the community mourns the loss of the six victims. And seeing the, the family, the pastor of the church and how he lost his, his daughter and it, it's midnight at night and I'm wondering how, how, how do they cope? I mean, how do you go to, how do you go to bed? How do you sleep? Tennessee's governor, Bill Lee, released a video statement saying his wife, Maria, was close friends with Cynthia Peak, a substitute teacher who lost her life on Monday. Cindy was supposed to come over to have dinner with Maria last night. Everyone is hurting. Everyone. Friends of victim Catherine Kuntz, who was the head of the school, are remembering her as an amazing friend and a compassionate educator. She was witty. Uh, she was sassy. She had this amazing confidence, but she was, a, she was a person of grace. But I'll tell you, I know as sure as I'm sitting here that Catherine went down protecting those kids. And Caitlin, the chief of police said that Tennessee does not have a red flag law, meaning no one could have petitioned the court to try to restrict or take away the shooter's guns. Yeah, and obviously major questions about that this morning, Carlos Suarez. Thank you so much for that report. All right, Carlos, and one witness to the chaos in Nashville describing what she saw. That witness is actress Melissa Joan Hart from Sabrina, the Teenage Witch. Many of you recognize her from that. She says that she was driving to her own children's school when she saw kids running from the Covenant School. Listen to what she says happened. We did, my husband and I were on our way to school for conferences, and uh, luckily our kids weren't in today, and uh, we helped a class of kindergartners across a busy highway that were climbing out of the woods. They were trying to um, escape 
the shooter situation at their school. So we helped all these tiny little little kids cross the road and get their teachers over there. And we helped mom reunite with her children. And um, I just, I, I don't know what to say anymore. A lot of people dealing with this emotion close up and from afar. Joining us now, Rebecca Berry, Dr. Rebecca Berry. She's a clinical psychologist uh, and child adolescent psychiatry professor at NYU School of Medicine. Good morning. Morning. It's hard to say good morning, right? When it is. We were saying during when uh, the piece was running, Carlos's piece. We're tired of discussing this. We're tired of talking about this. It's emotionally draining. Um, you saw Melissa Joan Hart, how she described it. We had uh, one of the counselors who went to the reunification center yesterday, and I asked her a very similar question is, people are dealing with this close up and from afar. The country is dealing with it. How do you measure, how do you deal with it? What do you tell people who have the same feelings as we do and who are dealing with it really much more personally than we are? Right. I think that there's a lot of heaviness around this topic, in addition to a lot of frustration and some warranted anger. Um, and really some confusion about what happens next. What are we going to do? We've all been seeing this happen more often. And I think that, you know, what, what stood out about Melissa Joan Hart's message is the impact on youth, right? Youth are continuing to have to really continue to hear about this, see this, and for some, unfortunately, experience it. So what, what is the impact that, that, that these events are having on, a, on our youth? I mean, it turns your stomach to see the little kids being holding hands and, you know, streaming out of school. That picture from the bus yesterday, remember? The picture, it's like this, you know, evocative image that is now associated with this. But what we're learning about the shooter themselves and this mental disorder that we are told, uh, emotional disorder, excuse me, Mm -hmm. that the shooter was being treated for, still able to access these guns. But I think people have questions about that because the shooter's parents have said they did not believe that they should be owning, that they should own guns. Right. And I think that has raised questions of the connection there. And also saying, you know, just because someone has an emotional disorder does not mean they're going to commit a mass shooting at a school. Absolutely. I think you're right on in that. And I think the, the narrative that we have coming out of this and, and the relationship that some may be making between having a mental health condition or a mental health disorder and the ability to carry out an act like this, I, I think that that's a really sort of, you know, that's not an immediate connection that we want to make. Certainly, I think a person that, that we've seen that individuals can have mental health conditions under, you know, underscoring some of these actions, but that doesn't necessarily prompt anybody to commit something like this. This is a very heinous and calculated act. Listen, you know, always in, in Washington, D.C., everything mm-hmm. is political, right? And everyone wants to do everything they can, except what well, many people, I should say, mm-hmm. want to do everything they can except talk about guns. Right. Uh, they want to talk about mental health issues, which is a legitimate part of it, but it's not the only thing. Mm-hmm. Tennessee does not have the so-called red flag law that allows uh, courts to, to seize firearms um, from people who are in danger. Um, there is a law that bans possession if someone has reported mental health issues. Doctors in this situation, right, mm-hmm. Healthcare workers, mm-hmm. do they have any means of reporting and, and stopping people from being able to do this? From my understanding of the red flag laws in the state of Tennessee, it is, a, you know, a mental health practitioner or a physician would be warranted to report if there was an indication where a person has expressed stated means to con- commit harm against themselves or against others, or if they have been hospitalized in some way for said reportings, right? And I, I'm not quite clear on the background, but I'm, I'm a, I do believe that that was not the case here. The mental yeah. health part is also is a really big part yeah. of it. That's a good mm-hmm. point. And so if, if that is something that you know someone is struggling with, 
what is a sign that you look for for something like this? Because mm-hmm. I think that is often one thing we talk about is ways to prevent this, not mm-hmm. just how to react. It's how to stop it from even happening in the first place. Right. Well, I think that collectively there can be some telltale signs. What we would most really look for apparently would be expressed or some leakage of intent to commit harm, some planning around such an incident like this. Behaviorally speaking, you would look for, you know, a a heavy isolation and any significant changes in a person's behavior, possible substance use. But again, that would really possibly require somebody who is close to the person who knows them to be monitoring those behaviors or to really kind of say, hey, that doesn't seem to be characteristic, or I I am privy to this information about what may be happening for them. I just want to, just 30 more seconds with you, because I think this is really important. Um, Yesterday, I was walking the dogs. I don't have kids yet, but I saw this kid coming home from school, right, and getting off of the bus, and just like, you know, the parents embracing. Mm -hmm. Right now, it's 6.12 in the morning. Parents are getting their kids together, Mm -hmm. ready to go to school, right? They're fighting, I don't want to put on the coat, or what have you, this little beautiful kids. And I'm wondering, what do you say to those parents? Because some of them are taking pictures so they can remember what the kids were wearing. Right. Right. In case something like this happens. What advice do you have, doctor? Right. I think that every parent every day, you know, deals with their own anxieties about how that young kid is going to be. And then in the wake of news like this, in the wake of tragedy, I think it gets a little bit harder to kind of have any certainty about how how things are going to go for my child. And I think that, you know, as parents of young kids um, and to themselves, I think we have to provide ourselves a sense of reassurance that, hey, we're, we're, you know, we can do something hopefully about this. And I'm going to re- my, reassure myself and my child that there are people that care about them and that, that are looking out for their well-being and that we trust that. Even though sometimes I think in the midst of feeling these emotions right now, it can be really hard to say that yeah. and to really feel that. Yeah. I th- when I saw that yesterday, I said that at least three parents, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, nine of them really, right. or, and many, many more loved ones around them that won't be able to have that moment of Right. with their kids ever again. It's devastating. Yeah. And you hope that in some ways people yeah. can put these emotions into action. Yeah. Thanks, Thank doctor. You. Thank you, doctor. Thank really you. appreciate the advice. Thanks for coming on. Now we want to get to Manhattan's DA, the investigation of the former President Trump, the role in his hush money payments to adult film star Stormy Daniels. The grand jury is not expected to hear the case again this week. It is expected to return tomorrow to hear a separate matter, but the schedule could change. The jurors last heard witness testimony in the Trump probe on Monday and didn't vote on a potential indictment. Also this morning, a judge has now ordered former Vice President Mike Pence to testify about conversations that he had with former President Trump leading up to January 6th and the insurrection. That's what sources are telling CNN. Of course, the former Vice President has said Trump endangered his family and everyone at the Capitol that day. He has so far declined to testify, though, in the special counsel's probe. Even now, he says he does need time to decide. What is he going to do? Will his legal team appeal the judge's ruling here? Uh, the requirements of my testimony going forward are a subject of our review right now, and I'll have more to say about that in the days ahead. Now, let me be clear. I, uh, I, I have nothing to hide. Uh, I have a constitution to uphold. Uh, we're currently speaking to our attorneys uh, about uh, the proper way forward. And as I said, we'll have a decision in the coming days. Pence now joins the list of former Trump White House officials who have been ordered to testify, significantly including Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. Our CNN senior crime and justice reporter Caitlin Polans is here with us. Caitlin, obviously, this is another setback for the Trump legal team to have this ruling come down. But what these investigators want to know is they want to be able to hear from Pence directly on the pressure that he felt from Trump. 
That's what we believe. And and it is a pretty notable and a quick decision out of the federal court in D.C. coming on Monday for Mike Pence saying he does have to testify. He got subpoenaed. He's going to have to go to the grand jury. The judge's ruling, uh, as far as we can tell, what we've learned through our sources, we haven't actually read it yet, but our sources are telling us that Pence is going to have to describe those conversations he had directly with Donald Trump, the sort of thing that nobody has testified to before because the only two people on those calls are Donald Trump and Mike Pence. Mike Pence, of course, wouldn't even speak to the House Select Committee investigation, but but now is being subpoenaed in this criminal investigation around January 6th. Of note here, this isn't a complete win for the special counsel's investigation, though, because Pence is walking away uh, with a bit of a victory, being able to say that he did defend some of the protections of the vice presidency. And apparently the judge did get to say uh, that when he was on January 6th, Mike Pence was acting as a congressional officer, so gets a little extra protection there. There may be some questions he can decline to answer in the grand jury, but there's a lot of gray area, and so we're going to have to see how that's going to play out. But it really is notable that this is another loss uh, for the Trump team. They're not going to be able to block testimony, and Mike Pence, his vice president, will have to testify. Yeah, and Pence's team seemed to have an indication that he would have to testify. They just don't want him to have to testify out about everything. How significant do you think it is when it comes to what you're talking about, the speech or debate aspect of this, where it will be able to limit parts of his testimony, but it doesn't seem like a significant amount of his testimony will be limited? Yeah, I mean, in the long arc of history, there is the possibility that this is the type of ruling that people will remember, right, what it means for the vice presidency of the United States. But in this investigation, we know that investigators want to ask about the conversations between Trump and Pence, the sort of thing that Pence has written about in his book. He wrote that Donald Trump called him a wimp the morning of January 6th. Uh, And so being able to hear that in the grand jury in a court setting, that is pretty notable. And it's also just notable how many times Trump is just being rejected in court every time he tries to block testimony with Pence, with his top aides, and also in a separate investigation, Mar-a-Lago, with his defense lawyer, even. Everybody has to speak. Yeah, we'll see what Pence's legal team decides to do. Caitlin Polance, thank you. Just months after a judge vacated Adnan Syed's murder conviction, a Maryland appellate court has reinstated that conviction how the subject of the serial podcast is reacting next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Welcome back, everyone. A Maryland appeals court has reinstated the murder conviction of Adnan Syed just months after all charges were dropped against him. Syed was the subject of the popular serial podcast, spent more than 20 years in prison for killing his girlfriend, Hai Min Lee and was released when a judge ruled that the state failed to properly turn material over to defense attorneys and noted the two suspects may have been improperly cleared. CNN's Bren Gengrass joins us now with more. Good morning to you. Um, What is the appeals court's reasoning for reinstating this conviction? Yeah, so that hearing that happened last year where his uh, sentence was vacated, essentially the appellate court is saying there needs to be a redo of that hearing, siding with the family of Heyman Lee, uh, who who basically said they didn't even get time to prepare for that hearing last year. They only got a few days' notice. They didn't even get to actually travel her brother from California here to Baltimore uh, to, to attend in person for that hearing. And the appellate court 
courts, they agreed with him and they said that he deserves that right. So essentially what the appellate court is saying is that this hearing needs to be redone. It gave the both sides about 60 days to kind of set a date to figure out how they're going to move forward with that. Uh, and if you're wondering, how is that not double jeopardy for Adnan Syed? Well, essentially the appellate court is saying it's not infringing on his rights uh, or violating double jeopardy, essentially saying because he's not being re-prosecuted in this case, he could go back to this hearing and again get his conviction vacated or he might be put back behind bars depending how the judges rule. Yeah, it's not new. They're just reinstating exactly. the former, the prior conviction. So what does this mean for him moving forward. Yeah, so he's going to stay out of jail for right now. Again, they're going to give 60 days for both sides to figure this out. His lawyers are already saying that they are going to go to the higher court, the Supreme Court, and argue this. But I do want to read uh, a quick thing about what uh, his his attorneys did say. They said that ensuring justice for Heyman Lee does not require injustice for Anand. The appeal was not about Anand's innocence but about notice and mootness. So that really gets to the core of what they're saying. There. Why do we have to do this all again? All right. Thank you, Brent. Stay tuned. Appreciate it. Yes, you're right. Stay tuned. Yeah. Also this morning, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie says he's not going to support Trump again, even if he is the Republican nominee for president in 2024. What he thinks will keep that from happening, though? And this. So G GOP lawmakers focusing on mental health after Nashville, the Nashville school shooting. We're going to look at what actions have and have not been taken. You know, Chris Christie, the former governor of New Jersey, is thinking about running against him for president. He said he plans to take the next two months to decide whether or not he'll run, which is interesting because Chris Christie and Donald Trump used to be friends. He was even Trump's debate coach. Maybe they're still friends. Maybe the reason Chris Christie is running against him is to make Trump look thin. <laughs> Oof. Uh, that is how Chris Christie said he believed he got COVID, remember, when he was the, the debate coach? Caitlin knows about that. She was covering him at the time. Jimmy Kimmel poking fun at Chris Christie there as a former New Jersey governor makes a case to take on Donald Trump. Christie predicts a former president's third bid for the White House could falter if an opponent can challenge him on the debate stage. You have to be fearless because he will come back and right at you. And so you need to think about who's got the skill to do that and who's got the guts to do it because it's not going to end nicely. Hmm, not going to end nicely. In an Axios interview, Christie even went as far as to say that he will never support Donald Trump for president again, even if he wins the Republican nomination. Interesting. So let's bring in now CNN political commentator and political anchor for Spectrum News, Mr. Errol Lewis, good morning to you. Good morning. Um, those are pretty bold comments coming from the former New Jersey governor and Republican presidential, once Republican presidential contender. Two things. Is he vying for that? And is that a realistic solution? Uh, yeah, I would, I would characterize that as bold, but not credible. Yeah. Um, uh, Chris Christie said that he, in 2016, that he would never support Donald Trump. And then two weeks after dropping out, after losing in uh, New Hampshire, supported he did exactly that. Right. Uh, the, the other thing about, you know, being on the debate stage, I mean, you know, it sounded very nostalgic uh, in the run up to the 2016 New Hampshire primary. Uh, he famously, Chris Christie, went after Marco Rubio and really, you know, sort of went after him on the debate stage and got him off, you know, off his back foot. And um, uh, it sort of worked in the sense that Marco Rubio came in fifth in that crowded field. The problem is Chris Christie came in sixth. And after close to 200 appearances in New Hampshire, he 
he got, I think, 7% of the vote. He'd made more appearances than anybody else. He'd staked his whole campaign on New Hampshire. So he, I, I can understand him feeling nostalgic going back to New Hampshire. He had all of those high hopes in 2016, but it crashed and burned back then. And it sounds like he may be setting up to do it all over again. It is interesting to hear him say, though, that he won't support Trump even if he is the nominee, because not only did he support him before, but also, you know, in 2020, he was in the White House, in the halls of the West Wing, helping him prepare for debates and helping him um, get ready for that. I mean, yeah. it's interesting. And it, part of what he's citing is, you know, the way Trump is still talking about January 6th, the fact that Trump played that song from what is being called the January 6th choir at his rally on Saturday. You know, it, it's an interesting indicator. One thing about political people, even ones who haven't gone as far as they wanted, like Chris Christie, is that they have excellent political noses for when the ship is sinking. So I read this as Chris Christie saying, this is going nowhere. Mm-hmm. Tr- Trump's not going to win. I mean, and because... Again, Chris Christie has proved to us more than once that if there's a realistic shot at power, if he thought Donald Trump had a realistic path back into the White House, I think we'd be hearing something very different. I read this as him saying this is not going anywhere, you know, that both substantively, but more importantly, politically, uh, Donald Trump is talking about the past when elections have to be about the future and trying to sort of make his personal grievances about what happened since January 6th, uh, the, the main theme of the 2024 election is probably not going to succeed. So can we turn now to Nashville? Because you have a a lot of folks now saying, um, look, this is not about guns, right? This is about mental health. Um, And this is about, I'm trying to get to the hypocrisy here, right? And hate crime legislation and so on and so forth. Um, This is Josh Hawley, Senator. He sent a letter to the FBI director and also to the Homeland Security director saying, I urge you to immediately open an investigation to the shooting of a federal hate crime. Okay, so he wants him to investigate. That's the letter that he Because sent. it's a Christian school. Because it's a Christian school. But then in 2021, he was the only senator to vote against hate crime legislation. <laughs> so what gives here when it comes to these men and women in Washington who, listen, it's not just guns, right? That's a big part of it, obviously. It's also mental health. Why can't there be, you know, a multi-pronged approach to this rather than just focusing on one issue and saying we can't do anything at all. You can't legislate hate. Yeah, right. When people rush to the microphones to tell you about all the things that are not going to work. Right. uh, It's not a very promising start to finding solutions. Uh, You know, on average, if today is an average day, 117 people are going to die from gun violence today. And the same thing tomorrow and the next day and the next day, Sundays included. Um, what, you know, and and by the way, more than half of those are suicides. So you want to talk about mental health. The core problem is mental health. I mean, this is a spectacular example where clearly there were some, some issues involving mental health, but on any given day, when people are taking their own lives using guns, clearly we've got an underlying problem there. So if Josh Hawley or anybody else were serious about it, and they are not, but if they were serious about it, they'd be pouring resources and effort and time into getting this done. And we've seen, in fact, quite the opposite over the years. Yeah, we did see the gun safety legislation that was passed last summer. Some Republicans did vote for that. Many of them did not. I want to show this moment, though, from yesterday on Capitol Hill. Senate chaplain, you know, is typically, this is a really rare statement to hear from him. This is what he said about what happened in Nashville. Lord, when babies die at a church school, It is time for us to move beyond thoughts and prayers. Lord, deliver our senators 
from the paralysis of analysis that waits for the miraculous. The paralysis of analysis that waits for the miraculous. Yeah, that's, my, that's my kind of preacher, you know, make you a little uncomfortable sitting there on a Sunday morning. Like, that does oh. not happen very often. Doesn't happen very often. And, you know, it's interesting if you think about it. I don't know um, who names or can remove uh, the Senate chaplain, but I suspect if there were a different majority leader, his job might be in danger right now. Um, this is something that, you know, you wish more uh, clergy would do, which is take a chance, speak your truth. Try and get people to feel a little uncomfortable and to take action. Um, I, I don't know if his thoughts and prayers are going to be any more effective than anyone else's here, because until someone takes action, we're not going to see much in the way of change. But it is very good to see this. And, and frankly, it's something that would have been unthinkable a while ago. And I think for the audience, it's important to keep in mind that, you know, uh, in the decade or so uh, since the, the Sandy Hook massacre, you know, you've got Every town for gun safety, you've got Moms Demand Action, you've got March for Our Lives, you've got things like this uh, chaplain speaking out. Uh, it's good, this is going to come from, from below. You know, we, we've seen and we've exhaustively covered the fact that Congress seems to be stuck, paralysis. Uh, but there's, there's a groundswell, and that's how social transformation happens. You know, it happens gradually, and then it happens suddenly. And I, I, I'm, I am encouraged uh, despite all of the tragedies that we're living with every day, that a lot of people are getting together and making clear that they're going to take some chances the way this chaplain did. Man of the cloth saying, move beyond thoughts and prayers. That's, that's pretty big. That Wait a moment. Errol Lewis, awesome. thank you. Thank you, Errol. So let's talk about the crazy weather that California has been getting now. The Southern Sierras, uh, storm ravaged California. They're already at record snow levels with more on the way. The severe weather forecast coming up. Also, a new bump in the road for President Biden, quite a pretty big bump, actually. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, the stark differences on ju the ju judicial overhaul bill that has roiled Israel and the remarkable comment made by President Biden last night. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is firing back after President Biden urged him to walk away from his controversial judicial reform plan Netanyahu responding to the president yesterday in a tweet saying, quote, Israel is a sovereign country which makes its decisions by the will of its people and not based on pressures from abroad, including the best of friends. That comes after Biden yesterday spoke publicly and said Netanyahu should walk away from the plan. Well, I don't know their inflection point, but I think it's a difficult spot to be in and they've got to work it out. And what do you hope the prime minister will do on that particular law? I hope he... Uh, that was a incredibly notable comment from President Biden. CNN's Hadass Gold is live in Jerusalem and tracking all of this. I mean, Hadass, I guess the question is, how did they respond to this? Because there's always this careful, delicate navigation where the U.S. doesn't want to look like they're telling them what to do. But President Biden was pretty explicit there. Yeah, Caitlin, I mean, for weeks, the U.S. has been expressing careful criticism of this overhaul plan that I'll remind you will give unprecedented power in the hands of the Israeli politicians in the parliament, allowing them to do things like overturn Supreme Court decisions that has since been put onto hold. But yesterday, we heard those frustrations just burst into the open. These were very sharp critiques by the U.S. president, who, in addition to saying that he hopes a compromise will be reached and that Netanyahu will just walk away from this original plan, he also said that Netanyahu will not be coming to the White House in the near term. Typically, the Israeli prime minister is invited to the White House for an official 
visit quite quickly after coming into office. It has now been months, and now it doesn't seem as though this is going to be coming anytime soon. That underscores the frustrations that the Americans have with the Israelis. But as you noted in the introduction there, the Israeli Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, although he talks about the alliance between the U.S. and Israel, and he talks about uh, how he is committed to bringing a, as he says, a broad consensus on these reforms, he is pushing back, essentially is saying, don't get involved into our business. And we're hearing even even harsher critiques from other members of his government, Itamar Benver, the Minister of National Security, saying Israel is not a star on the American flag. And even others going further, saying that the Americans are being fed what they call fake news on what this overhaul will do. But this is an incredible critique that underscores currently the situation, the relationship between the Americans and the Israelis that has, you know, Joe Biden talks about how he's been a stalwart supporter of Israel for so many years. Netanyahu talks about how he's known uh, Joe Biden for more than 40 years. They talk about what a great relationship they have. This is really a crisis moment in the relationship between the Israelis and the Americans. And the opponents here, the opposition in Israel, are critiquing Netanyahu, saying that he is endangering Israel's most important relationship, relationship its strongest ally, one that is vital for Israel's security. Caitlin. Yeah, they often talk about this, you know, 40-year relationship that they've had. But it's so fascinating because our White House producer, DJ Judge, just told me this democracy summit that the White House is hosting right now is still going on. Netanyahu mm -hmm. is actually speaking at it right now, virtually, of course, as you can see him there. But it's just interesting to see as this is going on with this dramatic attention behind the scenes. Now we're seeing him still appear at this summit. Yeah, I mean, it's also going to be interesting to hear how he ties in what this overhaul will do. He keeps saying it's going to strengthen Israeli democracy, not destroy it. But, Caitlin, the Supreme Court in Israel is the only check available on the laws passed by parliament. So if you allow the Israeli parliament to overturn Supreme Court decisions, what checks and balances still exist then? Yeah, good question. Hadass Gold, thank you so much. A Nashville man hearing the gunshots got out of his car, stopped traffic as children fled from Monday's school shooting. He's going to join us live with this with his video just ahead. And later on, we're going to get a front row seat inside America's gun culture. Ranchers, people steal their horse or cattle. I think they should be able to defend them, defend their property. Kill someone over a horse. Yeah. More CNN this morning to come after the break. Millions of people in California, once again, under severe weather alerts this morning as another powerful Pacific storm moves south with more strong winds, rain, and snow. The Sierra Nevadas could see up to four more feet of snow and the San Bernardino Mountains a foot or more. What the heck is happening in California? Let's go to meteorologist Eric Van Dam in the CNN Weather Center. That's the appropriate question for you. It appears that California is getting, you know, a... a a break, right? Not getting a break here, say, because the temperatures are no. also running 10 to 15 degrees cooler than normal. Yeah, it's sounding like a broken record once again. Yet another storm system, and as you mentioned, it's a colder storm system because it originated in the Gulf of Alaska. So we're drawing in that cold air from the north. Now, go back a week when we had that storm intensify and approach the San Diego Bay region or San Francisco Bay region. That actually created all the uh, wind and power outages. Well, it's not going to do the same. It's actually going to stay offshore as it strengthens. But what I'm really concerned about is later this week when it starts to interact with warm air from the Gulf of Mexico, another severe weather setup setting up across the nation's midsection. So that's a major concern. Look at the storms lining up over the past month or so. We've had about 12 atmospheric river events and of 
course, that's created uh, flooding concerns, but also done quite an exceptional thing to our drought conditions, eradicating extreme and exceptional drought across the Central Valley compared to last year to uh, the current status. Now, impressive snowfall totals, as Don just mentioned. Some of the snow burying houses. This is video coming out of Mammoth Mountain, where they've been shoveling over, get this, 50 feet of snowfall. They're about to set their record for the most amount of snow later today when it starts to snow from the storm I showed you just a moment ago. Similar picture kind of unfolding across the Sierra Nevadas. This is broken up into three different sections, northern, central, and southern. Get this, the southern Sierra Nevadas has never had this much snow. They're sitting at 283% snow water equivalent, so that's compared to average to date. And uh, that's, of course, going to pay dividends once we get into these warmer spring and summer months. But, of course, if it gets too warm too quick, rapid runoff, rapid snowmelt, and that means the potential for more flooding. How does this compare to average? Well, we didn't even break average for the past three years. But this year, we're going into the stratosphere. And if you're a snowboarder like me, you're jumping up with joy because you know this is the season. Yeah. Don, Caitlin? Yeah. Fancy graphics. Nice. There. I like it. Very hey. sharp. Welcome to the team, hey. by the way. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. <laughs> we'll see you a little bit later on. Thank you very much. Derek okay. Van Dam. And also this morning, we're continuing to track the developments out of Nashville, where police have now released some of the body cam footage that was worn by officers who confronted the shooter inside of the Covenant School. We'll show you what that video shows us next. Artificial but ethical Pope Francis urging scientists to proceed with caution when it comes to artificial intelligence. At a Vatican conference this week, he said, quote, I am convinced that the development of artificial intelligence and machine learning has the potential to contribute in a positive way to the future of humanity. I am certain that this potential will be realized only if there is a constant and consistent commitment on the part of those developing these technologies to act ethically and responsibly. Now, the Pope stopped short of referencing a viral and fake AI-generated image of him in a white puffer jacket. You know how I can tell it's fake when I look at it now is the hand. That if you it. look at the hands, we can't see it because if we take the Chiron down, you can see it in his hands. That is how you can tell, I think, that it's a doctored image. Oh, yeah. I can kind of tell it's a doctorate image because that coat is way too fancy. Because <laughs> you don't think the Pope wears Pope's no, maybe not. I don't know. But, I mean, it is a cool coat. Maybe someone should buy it for him. It's a beautiful yeah. coat. I'm in trouble, I think, because I saw that initially and didn't question it. <laughs> you did? I was like, what a Scrolling through Twitter. <laughs> All right. As we say, meanwhile, CNN This Morning <laughs> continues right now. newly released body camera video from the police officers who confronted and killed a mass shooter at the Covenant School in Nashville. What you see there is a very highly trained, well-coordinated response. She was under doctor's care for an emotional disorder. We now know that the 28-year-old had purchased seven guns in all. We cannot stand by. Our children, our future are at risk. So I again call on Congress to pass this law over this man. It just seems like on the other side, before they even know the facts, the first thing they talk about is taking guns away from law-abiding citizens. The American people deserve a fight in Congress, and I'm not going to take no for an answer. 
A federal judge ordering former Vice President Mike Pence to testify about conversations he had with President Trump in the lead up to the insurrection. They're interested in this pressure campaign that Trump and his allies were applying on Pence not to certify the results of the election. We're currently reviewing, but let me be clear, I have nothing to hide. This is a textbook case of bank mismanagement. You did not have to be an accountant to figure out what the hell was going on. We have a crisis and you come in here without knowing whether or not you did your job, you say you want more. That's not the way this works. We're learning about who might be called to testify in Dominion Voting System's $1.6 billion defamation case against Fox News over the 2020 election. The company wants more than 80 witnesses, and they include Sean Hannity, Tucker Carlson, Maria Bartiromo, Laura Ingram. There could always be a settlement right before the clock strikes midnight, but it looks like all things are pointing to a trial happening in just a few weeks. I mean, that would be major if that happened, a trial with you know, one of the biggest news organizations in the news organizations in the world, that would be huge. It would be really significant to yeah. see them, those executives testifying. Yeah. We have got a lot to cover, as you saw there uh, in our five things. So let's start with the brand new details in Nashville and that school shooting and questions about how the shooter was able to buy so many guns. Police say the shooter was being treated for an emotional disorder, but was able to legally buy seven guns before murdering three children and three staff members at a private Christian school in Nashville. And there's brand new reporting from the New York Times about the shooter's past. Now, the shooter's former teacher at an art college told the Times that years ago, the shooter had an emotional breakdown in her class when she had trouble creating a password for the school's online student portal. And in recent years, a shooter had been grieving on Facebook about the loss of a romantic partner. There's new harrowing police body cam video that shows officers rushing in and confronting the shooter. We have synced up both angles, released by officials. Warning for you now, okay? Just want to make sure if you have people in the room that shouldn't be watching this, then you should get them out. This video is disturbing. Goodness, we're learning more about the young students and educators who were murdered, including the school's custodian, Mike Hill. Students called him Big Mike. He had 14 grandkids. His family says Mike loved spending time with them and had a passion for cooking. Hallie Scruggs was one of the three nine-year-olds gunned down. Her dad is a pastor of the church that runs the school. Evelyn Dickhouse her family says that their hearts are completely broken. They say Evelyn was a shining light and they cannot believe this has happened. And then there are the survivors. It's a brand new video taken by Good Samaritan. And you see students running across a busy street to escape, one running into the adult arms right there. Jason Hoffman took that video. He, had, uh, he stopped traffic to help the kids escape. 
Jason, thank you so much. We appreciate you joining us. Can you please talk about the thank scene you. of the shooting and how you knew something was wrong, why you did what you did? Well, I, uh, I was just, I happened to be in the area and I heard probably 10 to 15 or more shots as you saw in the video there. I was hearing that outside and um, I just took cover in my car and uh, just tried to flee the area. Um, as I was going down the road to get away from the gunshots, I see police everywhere and a woman jumping out into, in front of my car, waving her arms. I noticed there's children behind her. And I put two and two together at that moment. And uh, it just hit me really hard. Yeah, I was going to say, did you, did you know what was going on and what was going through your head? I had no idea at the time what was going on. I didn't know if it was like a police chase that ended up in a shootout. Um, it was when I saw the teacher come out of the woods and the kids behind her that my heart sunk and I, I was hoping that it had nothing to do with school. But of course we found out later on that it did. And uh, no, I didn't have anything, I didn't have any idea what was going on until it broke on the news while I was sitting there surrounded by the police still. Were you able to speak to anyone there in traffic or hear anyone? Can you take us through that? What were they saying if you heard anything? Yeah, there were uh, people started to show up at the school that were friends, family of uh, some of the staff, some of the victims. They were sharing their concerns, their worry. Um, people were standing there crying. Um, the kids got across the street to the other side and the police saw that uh, they escaped from the woods and came over and actually brought them to a safe place. So once they were safe, uh, we felt a little bit better about that. They escaped from the woods? Yes, they came through. Um, there's a, the, the church is up on a big hill surrounded by woods, and uh, they came all the way down the hill to the road and uh, jumped out in a four-lane highway, basically, in the road there. And uh, so... I stopped the car immediately. We jumped out. The people to the left of me stopped, get out. And uh, once they see these kids crossing the road, everybody stopped and got out and made sure they were safe. What has this done to you? Um, it's just really, I have a nine-year-old myself, and it's really hard to send him to school. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's really made me... Um, frightened to do that, frightened to send him anywhere. This is a hard world that we live in now, things like this happening everywhere. Jason, you live in this community, and we've seen this new body camera video that was released by the police yesterday. I wonder if you've seen it and what you think of, of how the police responded to this. They jumped into, I can't commend them any anymore for their bravery, their actions. Um, they jumped straight into the line of fire to, um, to take down the threat. And that, that body cam footage is hard to watch, knowing that I was hearing that just right outside. You and were able that, to hear um, the gunshots? Yes. Yeah, I heard, I heard uh, several different calibers going off, and I knew that's when it was probably a shootout, the police. I just didn't know where it was yet.
that was at the school. Well, Jason, you take care of yourself. Um, sorry that you experienced that, but we are grateful that you're here to describe and to what help. happened and to help, right? Um, go on. And the situation, I did what anybody, if anybody would do, I think, in, in that situation, help the kids get to safety. Jason Hoffman, thank you so much. Thank you, Don. Also this morning on Capitol Hill, Republican lawmakers are focusing on mental health, not as much on guns after the Nashville shooting. We also heard yesterday from the Senate chaplain. His name is Barry Black. You don't often hear from him in a way like this, what we're about to show you, where he's urging uh, lawmakers to take action. Lord, when babies die at a church school, it is time for us to move beyond thoughts and prayers. Lord, deliver our senators from the paralysis of analysis that waits for the miraculous. CNN's Lauren Fox is live on Capitol Hill. Lauren, in the aftermath of the shooting, we heard President Biden say that he wants to see Congress enact the assault weapons ban that he's called for. You've been talking to lawmakers. I imagine that still seems just as unlikely as we had initially believed, right? Yeah, I mean, after dozens of conversations with Republicans over the last 48 hours, the resounding analysis that you hear from them is that there is nothing more that they can do when it comes directly to blocking things like purchasing an assault weapon. One of the things that you hear from Republicans over and over again is that the country needs more mental health care, that there are individuals in this country that want to do harm, and that no gun legislation is going to change that. Here's one of them, Congressman Tim Burchett of Tennessee. We can pass all the laws we want, but somebody's going to 3D print a book. Somebody's going to get ammonium nitrate like they did in Oklahoma and, and um, Timothy McVeigh. Completely evil. Didn't have a assault weapon, whatever that is, whatever the de new definition of that is. Uh, didn't have any of that, and um, that's what we're going to have. The laws don't work. Until people change their hearts, we're not going to see a change. And I talked to Tom Tillis. He was instrumental in passing that modest gun reform that passed in the summer of 2022. Even he said he didn't see room for new gun legislation. Instead, he argued that the focus should be on implementing the bill that they passed last summer. He says a lot of that mental health money still is going out to communities. And he said it's really not clear yet what impact their bill could have, arguing that there's just not room for something else, Caitlin. Yeah, it seems like both... Besides the allegory, no action is likely here. I want to ask you, Lauren, about something else that's also happening this morning because House Speaker Kevin McCarthy seems to be asking the White House to have a meeting when it comes to the debt ceiling. But the White House seems to be responding that that's premature in their view, in their view at this point until they see Republicans' budget. Yeah, and Republicans are backing away from going ahead and putting out a budget before they deal with the debt ceiling. I talked to a source yesterday who told me that the emphasis right now is on that debt ceiling, which really puts both sides in paralysis at this moment. We also expect that Jerome Powell, the Fed chair, is going to be a special guest today at the Republican Study Committee's lunch. That is a conservative group that includes many of the House Republicans. It's going to be really interesting to see what comes of that lunch. But it's important to remember, Caitlin, that it has been weeks 
since the president and the speaker sat down to discuss the next steps in the debt ceiling. And while there's no finite deadline right now, we know we're just a couple months away from needing congressional action. And right now, there's no path forward. Caitlin? It's deeply concerning. Lauren Fox, thank you so much for that report. So back to what we're talking about here when it comes to guns themselves. The question a lot of people have is what makes the AR-15 style so popular in the United States? The AR was first developed for military use back in the 1950s. It's since become one of the most popular weapons in America. According to a new Washington Post Ipsos poll, not new, excuse me, from October, about 16 million Americans actually own one. On its path to popularity, the weapon has also become a favorite among mass shooters. Like the gunman who opened fire at a movie theater in Aurora, Colorado back in 2012. And the one that slaughtered concert goers in Vegas in 2017. And then again, of course, last year, Uvalde, Texas at Robb Elementary School. We have now learned that the Nashville shooter also had an AR-15 style weapon. That is, according to police, one of the three firearms that was found at the scene Last year, in the weeks after the Uvalde school shooting, CNN's Ellie Reeve traveled to Oklahoma where she spoke with the gun rights group OK2A. Here's a short clip of that interview. Many Americans saw the second elementary school massacre in a decade and thought there should be more restrictions on guns. We wanted to know why these guys saw the same thing and thought there should be more guns more openly and everywhere. Can you explain like, what are you afraid of? Because to an outsider, it's like you have all Republican state government. Like, why? Why? Well, afraid's the wrong word. Okay. Concern. It's not so much about guns. It's about our God-given rights. A good guy or gal with a gun is the only answer to a bad guy with a gun. I've heard that said a lot, but I don't know that it's true. Can you give me a logical reason that it wouldn't be true? It didn't work in Uvalde. It was a gun-free zone. It was in a school. But there are police officers. Yeah, there were 19 police officers who had orders from their bosses to stand down. Mallory Reeve is with us here now. It is an interesting look to see because obviously there's a lot of gun owners who say, hey, I'm a responsible gun owner. Why do I have to have you know, my freedoms restricted because of people in these mass shootings? What else did you learn as you were investigating and reporting this out? Uh, well, he talked about how he wasn't afraid, but actually a big part of um, their uh, issue is that they are afraid. They, most of the people we spoke to in this group had created these very elaborate hypothetical situations in which they would need a weapon to defend their families. So the head of OK2A, Don Spencer, told me that what if he drove home and someone was robbing his house and he interrupted them? He would need an AR-15 so we would have enough ammo to kill them all. Okay. Um, listen, this is, I think it's important here to show the facts. So you were, um, Caitlin was going through that, and we are talking about all the things, Aurora, Colorado, Las Vegas, uh, Robb Elementary in Uvalde, Newtown, and on and on and on. These are all AR-15-style, at least, weapons that they use. The Washington Post and Ipsos uh, poll asked 400 people why they own an AR-15, um, LA, um, and they said the largest percentage cited self-defense, as you just mentioned, protection, Tied for second place was target shooting and recreation. Tied for third, the Second Amendment and hunting. From your conversations with these guns, does that track? Because you say they come up with these elaborate situations, but does that poll track to you? A lot of the people we spoke to talked about the Black Lives Matter protest in 2020. They'd been watching a lot of right-wing media, and they, they were afraid that mobs of people were coming to 
where they lived, out in small town America or in the suburbs, to do them harm. That that never happened, never seemed to erase that fear. And even after we finished our interviews, they would text me these anonymous messages that were completely, like, unverifiable, threatening to come attack people out in the middle of the country. And they would say to me, well, this is why we need an AR-15. We have to protect ourselves. Where are they getting this from? Oh, um, just like right-wing uh, social media accounts. You know, they'll take an anonymous post on Reddit and then it goes around Twitter and then Facebook. But what about other people who, I mean, I'm from Alabama. I know a lot of people who own these kinds of guns that are careful with them, that keep them stored in proper places in their homes and whatnot. And that's the pushback, you know, we even see from a lot of Republicans on Capitol Hill. I was watching our reporters there yesterday asking people, you know, why should people be able to own an AR-15? Why Why do you think this should be legal? And a lot of the Republicans immediately answered, saying that they they didn't really waver on the idea that they should be able to be purchased. Right. A lot of people said, why do I, a good person, a good citizen, need to be punished for what a bad citizen did? Um, I also, my family's long line of hillbillies in the Missouri Ozarks, a lot of hunters. But what my family bragged about was being able to shoot the eye out of the squirrel with a twenty-two. Right? Like, you, you don't shoot deer like you're in a Quentin Tarantino movie. Yeah. I just, I remember being uh, in Aurora, and I wanted to see how long I was covering the Aurora theater shooting. It took me 20 minutes to buy an AR-15. And I had a, a Georgia driver's license at the time. I lived in Georgia from Louisiana, so I relate to what both of you are saying. But mm-hmm. I had a friend in Georgia. He would just drive around with an AR in his trunk. I remember helping him put stuff in his trunk. He was moving. And I said, what's that? He said, oh, it's just my AR. I carry it or drive around with it all the time didn't really need a permit for it. It was just something that he drove around right. with. And that's true in Oklahoma as well. They have permanent, permitless carry. They've had it since 2019. The Oklahoman reported last month that there have been 100 new bills to expand gun rights there. And some of them seem kind of absurd. Like the, there's a proposal to allow guns on boats, um, which, you know, even lawmakers are like, well, I don't know why a boat dispute needs to be settled that way. The interesting thing is that you can be a proponent and support the Second Amendment, but also support sensible gun legislation and also question why people, you know, feel that they must own AR-15s. As you said, you know, back in the day, like a 22, like you wanted to shoot a rifle and you wanted to be precise. You didn't need the AR-15 or that style weapon. So, but we are here. Yeah. Yeah. Great reporting. Thank you, Ellie. Appreciate that. So the acting head of the FAA says that the series of near collisions on runways this year may be linked to fallout from the pandemic. Billy Nolan said, quote, air travel is coming back in a big way since the pandemic, but the long layoff coupled with the increased technical nature of our systems might have caused some professionals to lose some of that muscle memory. Since Pete Montine joins us now live from Washington with more on this. This is very interesting that he's saying this. Good morning uh, to you. What else did we hear from Nolan? Well, we're talking about complacency caused by the pandemic, Don. It's something we've heard about from pilots, from labor unions, from Captain Sully Sellenberger during our primetime special on air safety earlier this month. And now we're hearing about it from the acting head of the FAA, essentially saying that the pandemic rebound is happening faster than workers can handle. And that is why we're seeing these dramatic near misses on or near runways at major airports involving commercial airliners. What's interesting here is that this is something that was echoed by Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg during my exclusive interview with him last month, and he attributed this to some kind of rust that is happening in the aviation system. Listen. It would be one thing if we found 
a certain piece of technology in the cockpit or uh, a certain control tower uh, where there were, there were a lot of issues. But instead what we're finding is that uh, pilots, ground crews, and controllers alike seem to be experiencing this uptick. Uh, some have described it as a kind of rust, uh, but that, that needs to turn into a very concrete diagnosis and specific action steps. We're not going to wait for something worse to happen to act now. The other interesting element here that Nolan points to is that retirements accelerated among pilots and air traffic controllers during the pandemic. The interesting thing here, and this is something that Captain Sullenberger agreed with me during that primetime special, is that there's a bit of a brain drain happening in aviation, allowing new people to matriculate much quickly, much more quickly than they have in the past. Although the simple explanation here is not all that simple, and the NTSB will have to investigate these six incidents in which these planes came near to colliding at major U.S. airports, Don. So many things have been affected by the pandemic. Are people accepting this as a valid reason for you know, airline issues? There's a chain reaction in all of these incidents, and the dynamic uh, part of aviation is that the conditions are very different. And so you really can't point to any one specific thing. What is interesting now is that we're now hearing a little bit more about the shortage of air traffic controllers, something we've been reporting out, although we just have to wait and see. You know, each incident is different and the NTSB is investigating, but that could take maybe a year or more for them to reach a final conclusion on these incidents. Pete Montine in Washington. Thank you, Pete. Also this morning, we're tracking news out of Philadelphia where officials say the city's water is safe to drink and to use. That comes after a chemical spill in the nearby Delaware River. So far, officials say no contaminants have been found in the water system since that spill. More than 8,000 gallons of water-soluble latex solution spilled into the Bristol Township on Friday. It raised up, ramped up fears that the city's drinking water had been contaminated, but officials say so far, safe to drink. Now the news, Mike Pence ordered to testify about former President Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election. So the questions that he still does not have to answer, that's next. I I have nothing to hide. We're currently speaking to our attorneys uh, about uh, the proper way forward. And as I said, we'll have a decision in the coming days. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. A big win for the special counsel, Jack Smith, who is investigating former President Trump and his role on January 6th. The judge, a judge has ordered former Vice President Mike Pence to testify about conversations that he had with Trump leading up to that day. The former vice president has so far declined to testify, even though he has said publicly and he's written in his book about Trump endangering his life. And he says everyone else at the Capitol that day. In an interview yesterday, Pence told Newsmax that he hasn't decided if he is going to appeal this new ruling. Uh, the requirements of my testimony going forward are a subject of our review right now, and I'll have more to say about that in the days ahead. Now, let me be clear. I, uh, I, I have nothing to hide. Uh, I have a constitution to uphold. Uh, we're currently speaking to our attorneys uh, about uh, the proper way forward, and as I said, we'll have a decision in the coming days. So Pence joins a list of former Trump White House officials who have been ordered to testify, including Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. So let's bring in now Jamil Jaffer. He was uh, associate counsel to President George W. Bush and the founder of executive uh, of the national and executive, I should say, director of the National Security Institute at George Mason Law School. Thank you for joining us. Good morning to you. Thanks for having me. So what do you think? What are the odds? Is he going to end up testifying? 
You know, I think it's it's very possible. Um, you know, what the, what the judge found, and we don't have the actual ruling itself, unfortunately, uh, but what the judge found was that the executive privilege, which is what protects the president's advice that he gets from his close advisors, his cabinet and the like, that that didn't apply and didn't bar Vice President Pence's testimony. But he did find that the vice president who plays this odd role between the executive and legislative branch, because under the Constitution, he's also the president of the Senate, he found that that might limit some of the testimony that Vice President Pence has to give about the day of January 6th, when he didn't actually talk to President Trump, but his, his actions on that day, because he was acting as the president of the Senate in his capacity there. Yeah, and we should note, the reason we haven't seen it is because it's under seal. So none of us have seen it. This is all based on reporting that we have from sources. But based on that, and the fact that Pence kind of already has written about what actually happened on January 6th, how problematic do you think it is for Trump if Pence is going to go and testify about the conversations they had leading up to that day? Well, you know, Caitlin, I think it's 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 potentially very problematic because as we saw in the January 6th uh, hearings that the committee held, uh, there's a lot of information about what President Trump knew about what was going to happen at the Capitol that day, um, his role, you know, the conversations he had with staff. Um, and, and of course, Vice President Pence, he didn't have those conversations on that day. But there's a lot of information about the lead up to the events that might demonstrate that he had some level of culpability and that he wanted uh, Congress to be unable to certify the election. He wanted Vice President to overturn the election. Um, and all of that goes right at the issues that ca uh, the special counsel Jack Smith is looking at. Okay, unless I'm hearing wrong, um, you, you sort of alluded to what I want to play. This is Pence. Um, this is him back in February arguing that the separation of powers would give him cover. Watch this. I'm going to fight uh, the Biden DOJ subpoena for me to appear before the grand jury because I believe it's unconstitutional uh, and it's unprecedented. My fight is on, a, on a, the principle of separation of powers in the Constitution of the United States. So I'm wondering what you think of that because he still has the ability to appeal and on what grounds do you think he has the best chance for that, the best defense? Yeah, look, you know, it's interesting. Uh, Vice President Pence did not argue that the executive privilege bars his testimony. President Trump's lawyers made that argument. That would have been an argument he could have made, but he didn't. He did make the argument that this issue of separation of powers, him acting as the president of the Senate in his legislative capacity, even though he's the vice president of the United States, uh, protects him and that uh, the speech or debate clause in the Constitution that protects members of Congress when they're acting in their official capacity, that that protects him and that that ought to be upheld. So if he if he's already gotten something of a decent ruling, we don't know the details, but it sounds like uh, the judge there uh, gave him some room if he wants to get that ruling to go further and give him more protection and prevent from testifying at all, he might go to the Court of Appeals. But my guess is he probably moves forward and does testify, and then we'll see what happens. Of course, the yeah. hard thing for Vice President Mike Pence is he's thinking about running for president. Hmm. He is thinking about running for president. His team has kind of long conceded privately that they believed he'd have to testify about some stuff. But in the bigger picture that I think is important here is it's not just Pence. Trump's attorney went and testified in a separate investigation, the Docs case, last week without attorney-client privilege. Mark Meadows has to go testify in this January 6th case with that executive privilege. The idea that all these people around Trump are now being ordered to go and testify without these protections that typically some of them would have with, about their private conversations with him. Remarkable. No, that's exactly... That, that's exactly right, Caitlin. And look, these folks have a lot of information on what the president knew um, in the lead up to January 6th. 
on the day of. And so I do think that some of this testimony could be very damning to the president who clearly, you know, had a sense of what might take place that day. You know, we heard that testimony during the January 6th hearings um, about the president, what he said about the folks around the mall and whether they had weapons or not, and that they weren't there to, they weren't there to harm him. And then he directs them to the Capitol. Uh, there's a lot of going on here that the special counsel can get into once he has access to testimony from folks like the ones you mentioned, Caitlin. Yeah, it could be critical. Jamil Jaffer, thank you for your perspective this morning. Thanks for having me. Thank you. All right, also, federal regulators slamming the executives of the two failed banks, even suggesting they may claw back bonuses those executives got. We're going to ask Republican Senator Mike Rounds, who was there at that hearing. That's next. Not. This is a textbook case of, of bank mismanagement. Uh, the, the risk the bank face, interest rate risk and liquidity risk, those are bread and butter uh, banking issues. The, the firm was uh, quite aware of those issues. They were quite vulnerable uh, to risk, uh, to shocks, and they didn't take the actions necessary. The Federal Reserve's top banking regulator with some tough words for Silicon Valley Bank's management. Of course, SVB's downfall sent waves of panic through the financial system earlier this month. Regional banks still dealing with the fallout from that. Now lawmakers investigating are investigating what led to the second and third largest bank collapses in U.S. history. Why no one saw it coming or why no one did anything about it. Joining us now is a member of the Senate Banking Committee, Republican Senator Mike Rounds of South Dakota, who was in that room. Thank you so much, Senator. And I, this morning, let's start with, do you feel like you've got a sufficient answer from, from these supervisors? And do you think that ultimately this will, will result in raising that $250,000 insurance cap? Yeah, I, I think the regulators yesterday, uh, I think they've begun to provide the information that we need. It's, when, it's not, we're not done yet. There's at least three separate investigations that we'll be looking at. Uh, they went a little bit farther than what I had expected them to yesterday with regard to sharing um, just how serious the mistakes were that SVB made. Uh, I, I wasn't sure they were going to go that far. They did make it clear that there's more work to be done. They also, though, made it clear that, that there were clear warning signs and that uh, the regulators uh, had notified the bank and that they were expecting an immediate response. What he didn't give us was what that response was or, or how quickly it was uh, sent back out. So uh, those are the things that we're going to be learning more about in the next six weeks. Uh, this was really a, a hearing to set up uh, and to make sure that they understood that there was a lot more information that we were expecting them to be able to deliver. The other piece that did not come out uh, as well, I think, is, is they, the regulators themselves are really kind of under scrutiny. Were they using the tools that were available to them? I think they wanted to start out with their best foot forward and say, well, look, we were really working on it. But uh, in, in this case, I think those are some of the questions we're going to be asking. Yeah. Were they on top of it? Did they use the tools that were available to them? I noticed that was one of the big things you pressed on was the timeline of how long they have to respond to warnings like that. I have a, do wonder, though, if you have a concern that this kind of creates a nationalized banking system to a degree, if you are allowing officials to, to have regulators, you know, pay these depositors out, even if they're uninsured, which typically would not be the case. Yeah, I think there's, there's two questions to it. First of all, did they do the right thing to, to, to protect the depositors? Uh, immediately over the first couple of weeks. And, and I think they did. I think that helped to slow down the fear that some depositors had that a smaller bank would be at risk. With the creation of Dodd-Frank, we've really already created a tiered system in which you have some banks that are 
too big to fail, the, the biggest banks. And that by almost by default would suggest that if you've got your money in one of those banks, it's too big to fail, that then you don't have to worry about how large your deposit is. Whereas if, if you're in a medium or a small bank, uh, you know, are they protected? You know, would the federal government step in? So there is a really good question moving forward that we don't have the right answer for yet. And that is, is how do we take out that marketing capability that the big banks have or that advantage that Dodd-Frank provides to them being too big to fail? Uh, part of that could be an increase in the size of the deposit protection program. Uh, and But with that comes a question of who pays for that cost? Who should pick up the, the major cost of insuring yeah. that or paying the bill? And that's a, that, I think, is something that we want to do after we get all the facts in. Then we can sit down and we can actually talk about long-term what is the best way to approach it so that we don't have that disadvantage for small and medium-sized banks. Senator, after the shooting in Nashville, President Biden called on Congress to pass an assault weapons ban again. Do you think that there should be action here in the wake of that shooting? I, look, I, I put myself in a position where I look at those, those families and, and I see these things and I look at my colleagues up here and there isn't anybody here that if they could find the right approach wouldn't try to do something because they feel that pain. And yet, when we start talking about bans or challenging on the Second Amendment, I think the things that have already been done have gone about as far as we're going to with gun control. I do think there are some things that can be done. And let me just give you one example. It's one that we already started working on. We've already introduced legislation. We've got uh, about $500 million that we think over a five-year period of time that's already been allocated for putting in solar panels at schools. Could we reallocate that back over a five-year period of time, provide grants back to the states, and allow them to go back in and help individual school districts to actually protect those, those schools, make them uh, more difficult to get into? You know, yesterday, one of the things we found out was is that in the manifesto that this individual had published, they actually looked at other locations and decided this was the least safe in or location and they walked away from some of the others. Maybe, you know, as we take small steps, but more steps uh, to take care of our kids and to prevent these kinds of things, maybe the next step should be how do we protect those most vulnerable in our society at a place where they should absolutely be safe. It's pretty stark to hear you say that you don't think there's anything else legislatively that Congress can do when it comes to guns. You voted against the gun safety legislation that was passed and signed into law last year. Some of your Republican colleagues voted against, or voted for it. Do you still stand by that vote, Senator? I do. Um, look, it, 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 in this case, it, it's a matter of implementation. And when we start talking about implementing, let's find out exactly what does happen with regard to mental health. And do you have the appropriate safeguards to protect individuals who are being accused? of not having uh, or not being able to get a weapon. You know, let's work our way through those. That gun, or that particular piece of legislation has not even been implemented yet to the full extent. But uh, I'm not prepared to start talking about implementing more stuff when we know right now that uh, we could be making our schools safer than what they are today if they had the resources to do so. And we know based on yesterday's activities that this particular shooter went out of their way to try to go to one where there was less protection than at other locations. Well, the shooter also purchased these guns legally, we are told. The shooter had an emotional disorder, according to 
uh, the shooter's family, yet they were still able to get access to these guns. Do you think Tennessee needs a red flag law? Is that clear that that would have helped here? Look, I, I, I think there's a little bit more involved in this, and, and, and I'll just give you an example. Um, I remember years ago when I was governor in South Dakota, there was actually the move on the part of the federal government at that time to try to look individually at veterans coming home who were asking for emotional or help working their way back out of a war zone back into to, to, you know, to, uh, life back home. And they actually were trying to look at the medical records to determine whether or not they should be put on, on, on a list uh, that would have prohibited them from actually getting a gun. These were the folks that were trying to get help. So when we start talking about whether or not we should prohibit someone from being able to exercise a Second Amendment right because they've asked for help, uh, I think we're starting to move down the wrong direction. And this is the fine line that, uh, you know, I don't think anybody wants to see that happen where you want people that are emotionally disturbed to be able to try and get help, but, and you don't necessarily want to just simply say that because you're getting help, you should be limited. Uh, and, and, and those are the types of things that I think make a lot of us think whether or not you want to put a red flag law in as opposed to what I would call a yellow flag, which is where you can actually go get help, but you don't have uh, the case necessarily of having your rights being prohibited or taken away at that time. I think that's when we start to get to a point where you're really going to have a problem getting something like that through Congress. I think there's a lot of debate on that. But one last question for you, Go. The former president opened up his rally in Waco, Texas on Saturday with a choir of people who have been imprisoned for their actions on January 6th singing. Do you think that was a mistake on his part? You know, I didn't see it. I saw excerpts of it. Uh, if it highlights January 6th and what happened on January 6th, uh, that was a bad day for America. Uh, it does highlight was, it, Senator. Yeah, and, and that was a, that was a bad day for for America. Uh, it was I was there. I saw it. Um, it what, what happened on that day? We never want to see happen again. And uh, so, in my opinion, if they're trying to identify that as being an appropriate response, they're wrong. And uh, I personally uh, think that uh, you know it was the closest thing to a, an insurrection that we've seen in a long, long time. It was not an appropriate thing to have happen in our country, and I don't want to see it happen again. Senator Rounds, thank you for your time this morning on all of these very important issues. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Four months after his conviction was vacated, the murder charge for Adnan Syed, the subject of the serial podcast, has been reinstated. We're unpacking this latest legal twist. A Maryland appeals court has reinstated the murder conviction of Adnan Syed in the case that was made famous by the podcast Serial, 1999. Syed's high school girlfriend, Hey Men Lee, was killed. Her body found buried in a Baltimore park. A year later, Syed was found guilty of her murder and sentenced to life in prison. In 2014, the Serial podcast uncovered new evidence, and in 2016, a judge granted Syed a new trial. Six years later, in 2022, his conviction was overturned and Syed walked free. Then yesterday, though, this twist, a court reinstated Syed's conviction because Hey Men Lee's family was not given adequate notice to participate in the hearing that resulted in Syed's release. So we want to turn now to Hey Men Lee's attorney, the family attorney, Steve Kelly. Steve, thank you so much. We appreciate uh, you joining us here. What do, you, what do you think of yesterday's ruling, and what does it say about the conduct of the state attorney's office? We are very pleased with yesterday's ruling, and, and you know, more, than, more so than 
um, one person's conduct, we think it really represents a step toward transparency and the rule of law. Um, you know, that you can't have a trial by podcast or trial by publicity. We are very proud of our, our criminal justice system in Maryland. We have issues like everybody else, but we have a very solid judiciary and there's a process and the process wasn't followed here. What happened here was backroom, you know, um, secret hearings and um, things being sort of rammed through, um, you know, while a lot of cameras were watching. Can you respond to what former state attorney Marilyn Mosby said? Because she, in a response, said this decision actually sets a dangerous precedent over a prosecutor's ability to reverse an injustice. She says we notified the families, the victim's family in line with Maryland law and best practices. They attended virtually and spoke. She said to now send this case back to court prolongs the pain, not only for the Lee family, it also leaves a cloud hanging over a man who deserves to be free. What's your response? My response is that that's the whole problem. Ms. Mosby thinks that she is, her judgment should be substituted for that of the Supreme Court of Maryland. You know, this is a conviction that's 21 years old, that's been affirmed by every single court at every single level. And Ms. Mosby was able to use a law because she didn't like the conviction to essentially reverse it. And that's not how things are done. It's in everyone's interest, including Mr. Syed, to have all the evidence aired publicly. Let us know what it is that that she contends exactly, um, you know, clouds this this conviction. But to have a prosecutor, you know, substitute her judgment for that of a jury and of the, the entire Maryland judiciary, it's just not appropriate. Uh, Marilyn Mosby said that she moved to have Syed's conviction uh, overturned because of new DNA um, evidence found on the victim's shoes that didn't match uh, Adnan Syed. Now, I understand that your clients are distraught, Right. But shouldn't the burden of proof be on the state to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Syed was guilty and not on Syed or on a podcast to prove that somebody else is responsible for the killing? The, the DNA is a red herring. You know, all the DNA shows that that is that um, Mr. Syed's DNA wasn't on the shoes. But, you know, who else's DNA wasn't on the shoes? Hey, Min Lee, you know, shoes are notoriously, you know, contaminated with all sorts of DNA from all sorts of different places. And the abs the Maryland court addressed that issue dead on when it said, look, the absence of DNA does not exonerate someone, especially when you're talking about touch DNA, um, touch DNA on shoes. So the idea that the DNA evidence really says anything is, is really just not true. It's not true. It doesn't show. All it shows is that his DNA wasn't on there wasn't on the shoes, but there was no evidence presented at trial that he handled the shoes. So, you know, it, 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 it the, the DNA and, and perhaps there is more of the story. And that's why we want this hearing. Let the, let the information be brought out in, in the public light in a transparent way so that we can all understand exactly what Ms. Mosby is talking about. It's not enough for her to say, trust me, you know, this is a bad conviction. And you want him to serve out his time, right? No, we don't. We want the truth. You, you know, if truth. Adnan Syed is not the guy, then we want him out. Absolutely. You know, the family is open-minded. They're good people. They're, they're not vengeful. And the last thing they would want is for him to serve a single day that he doesn't deserve to serve. All right. Steve Kelly, we thank you for appearing. Best of luck to you. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. 
A real life Ocean's Eleven, not quite, but we are going to tell you why an attempted casino heist in Colorado went bust. Take the money and run. Not Vegas, where I was just thinking. Oh, More CNN this morning to come after the break. So we need you to look at this dramatic new video this morning of the moments of a deadly fire when the deadly fire sparked a migrant detention center, sparked at a migrant detention center. So it happened Monday in Juarez, Mexico, near the El Paso border crossing. And we want to warn you that the footage is disturbing. So here it is. You can see the flames and smoke filling the detention area in just seconds. Migrants scrambling, scared for their lives as Mexican immigration officers walk away from the cells where many were still locked up. Now, Mexico's president says that some migrants set the fire by igniting mattresses because they were being deported. At least 40 people died in the fire and dozens of others are injured. The U.S. says it's now prepared to process them for emergency medical care. Also this morning, a barge in Kentucky that was carrying toxic and highly flammable methanol stuck in the Ohio River. It's also sinking. It is one of three runaway barges that has been pinned to a dam in Louisville, Officials say the barges broke loose from a boat early yesterday after it hit something stationary. Not totally clear what that is yet. So far, they say there's no evidence of any leaks, that crews are monitoring the water and air quality, but obviously a cause of concern for that community. A woman in Hawk, Black Hawk, Colorado, facing theft charges now and what could be the largest casino heist in Colorado history. Cops arrested cashier Sabrina Eddy after they say surveillance video caught her taking half a million dollars in cash out of the vault. Now, Eddie says somebody called her and said that they were uh, head of operations at the casino and to bring the money to a lawyer at a specific address. But when she got there, it was actually a hospital. She said she handed the money over to a man who came to her window and went back to get more. She has been booked into the county jail. Seeing this morning continues right now. I had no idea at the time what was going on. I didn't know if it was like a police chase that ended up in a shootout. Um, It was when I saw the teacher come out of the woods and the kids behind her that my heart sunk. That was Jason Hoffman. He was on with us last hour talking about just happened to be driving by the school and saw kids running, he says, out of the woods into their parents' arms. He stopped traffic to help facilitate the whole thing and then took some video of it. I mean, just horrific all the way around. The more we hear, the worse it gets. Yeah, I know, but it is, it's nice to see someone like that who, who did take a heroic action that day, who got involved and tried to help, even if he was done playing his own role. We have a lot to get to this morning. Good morning, everyone. Poppy is off. We have new video that shows young children escaping and running across the street during a school shooting in Nashville. And we're learning alarming new details about the shooter's past. Also this morning, former Vice President Mike Pence has now been ordered to testify to a grand jury about one-on-one conversations he had with former President Trump leading up to January 6th. And a judge blasting Fox News lawyers in a billion-dollar lawsuit against the network. As we said, a lot to get to, but we're going to start with new details about the Nashville school shooter, and they are raising major questions at this hour, including how was a person who was being treated for an emotional disorder able to legally buy seven guns and then go on for a rampage murdering three children and three staff members at a private Christian school? 
There's brand new reporting from the New York Times. The shooter's former teacher at an art college told the Times that years ago, the shooter had an emotional breakdown in her class over trouble creating a password for the online student portal. And in recent years, the shooter had been grieving on Facebook about the loss of a romantic partner. We're now hearing from people who were driving near the school during the shooting and helped children escape to safety, including actress Melissa Joan Hart. Listen. But we did, my husband and I were on our way to school for conferences. And uh, luckily our kids weren't in today. And uh, we helped a class of kindergartners across a busy highway that were climbing out of the woods that were trying to um, escape the shooter situation at their school. So we helped all these tiny little little kids cross the road and get their teachers over there. And we helped mom reunite with her children. And um, I just, I, I don't know what to say anymore. Miss Caitlin and I were just talking about at the top of the hour, we mentioned that we just spoke to the man who shot this video. His name is Jason Hoffman. He heard the gunshots. He stopped traffic, helping children cross the street. I stopped the car immediately. We jumped out. The people to the left of me stopped, get out. And uh, once they see these kids crossing the road, everybody stopped and got out and made sure they were safe. Luckily, those were the survivors, those who did make it out of the school and did cross the road. We're also learning more this morning about the three young students, nine-year-olds, and the educators who were murdered, including the school's custodian, Mike Hill. Students referred to him as Big Mike. He had seven kids and 14 grandkids. His family says that Mike loved to spend time with them and that he had a passion for cooking. Hallie Scruggs, as you see here, was the, one of the three nine-year-olds who was killed. Her dad is actually the pastor of the church that runs that school. Evelyn Dickhouse's family says that their hearts are completely broken. They say that she was a shining light, and they cannot believe that this has happened. As we are learning more about all of this and staying on top of the, what the families are saying and their responses, we're also learning more about the investigation in and of itself. And our CNN team has been able to trace the path that officers took to actually reach the shooter. Officer Rex Engelbert enters through a first floor entrance at the front of the building. He and other officers quickly clear rooms as they keep moving on the first level. Then the sound of gunshots sends them running up a staircase to access the second floor. That's where they continued toward the sound of gunfire and take out the shooter who was standing by a cathedral window. All of that in the span of two minutes and 15 seconds. For more on this, I want to bring in CNN's senior crime and justice correspondent, Shimon Procupes. But first, we do want to warn you, uh, this body cam videos that you're going to see, they are disturbing. We just want everyone to be aware of that. And Shimon, I mean, walk us through what we're seeing here. This is the first video uh, that is being worn by one of the officers. Right. So in. this is, as you can see, Rex Engelbert's officers. The key thing here is you see the school administrator there. If you stop the video, you go before the school administrator uh, is telling uh, the officer where perhaps some of the students may be, where students are missing. And this is key because already officers coming there, arriving, are getting key pieces of information. And then, Caitlin, as we go here, there's another school administrator where you will see as the officers come in, this gentleman here who hands them the key so they can actually go inside which really tells you that these school officials have drilled for this, sadly, have prepared for something that perhaps could happen uh, like this. And so then they entered the building, and that is when we start to see them going through into the actual school. Right. And then here what you hear is the officer saying, let's go, let's go, and calling for other officers 
to join him, to sort of get into this stack team, to get into this contact team so they can go in. And the leading officer, you see one opens the door, the other one immediately follows, the other officers go in, and they start their search. They're looking for victims. And obviously the key here is they're looking for the shooter. And what you're seeing here is generally, generally what you see in these situations, officers opening doors, turning handles, getting inside these classrooms to look for survivors, to look for victims, and obviously the shooter uh, as well. The other thing, the next part, what I really want to point out, Kaylin, if, if we can go to the next part, is the gear that these officers have. You're Which seeing, is really important. It here. is important because go, this go, go, is go, go, sadly go. the world we now live in, where first responders such as this now carry these long guns. They keep them in their cars. And this all started because of active shooter situations, sort of to give officers this extra level of weaponry. They now have these weapons in their cars uh, in most police departments. So that These weapons here. Like these the here. And here's the thing about this, why I wanted to point this out, because there's a lot of comparison being made to Uvalde. These are the same weapons that many of the officers in Uvalde had when they went into the hallway. Yet, obviously, they went but then they retreated uh, and didn't actually go in the classroom and waited 77 minutes. They complained at one point that they didn't have the right gear, but they did. They had those weapons. Uh, The officers there- That's really notable. So they had the same gear then that these officers had here. In fact, they may have had a little more gear at times. They were wearing helmets, some of the officers. Some of the officers did have ballistic shields that weren't rifle rated. That's a little nuanced, but they they had the gear to go in. Uh, And so this is what the officers now train for, sadly, in these situations. This is back in Nashville. This is when the officers then are going upstairs. And this is when they actually come in contact. They start to go upstairs. They're they're hearing, uh, obviously, the fire alarm. There's some gunfire. And they start to realize that the shooter could be upstairs. And this is really interesting to watch. Obviously, you have this officer here, Engelbert, with his long gun. You see other officers going ahead with just their sidearms, and you could hear the gunshots there. Uh, and then we go to the next camera, uh, which is Colazzo, which is the other officer. And here, obviously, you could hear more gunshots. But here's interesting. What happens is one of the officers will push the other officers ahead, the officer with the long gun, because that's going to be ultimately the person they want in front to take out the shooter, to sort of intercept, interject the shooter, and take the shooter out. And that's what we see here. And so many comparisons obviously being drawn between what happened here and how quickly this was compared to Uvalde. You know what I'm so stuck by is the key that the administrator gave them because that is what we saw in Uvalde when you were reporting on that, struggling to get in the door. Right, struggling to get in the door, but they didn't even need a key there. What investigators found out later on, the door was unlocked. But with the other things that you're seeing here that we didn't see in Uvalde is school administrators being on the front line telling officers what's going on, who is where. Students are missing. Kids are here. People are upstairs. That didn't happen in Uvalde. The school administrators were nowhere to be found. Yes, some of them were in lockdown, and there was a breakdown in communication because some of the officers were confused over whether or not kids were actually inside the classroom. Of course, we know there were. But you're seeing here school administrators on the front line working with officers, giving keys, giving instructions, giving information. And I think that was key here as well. Helping save potentially a lot of lives. Sharon, fascinating look at both of those. Thank you for that. Well, many in the Nashville community turning to their faith to help them cope. And joining us now is Clay Stouffer. He is a senior minister at Woodmont Christian Church, just two miles from the Covenant Elementary School. His church served as a reunification center after the shooting. And one of the victims, nine-year-old Evelyn Dickhouse, was part of his congregation. He joins us now. Good morning, 
Thank you so much for joining. We really appreciate it. Good morning, Don. Good to be with you. Sorry that you're dealing with this. You know, the Dickhouse family has been members of your congregation for years. How are they doing? Uh, well, as you heard yesterday, um, they're heartbroken and they're sad and uh, they are having a hard time. And I want to say one thing. Uh, Woodmont Baptist Church is the church next to us, and that is where the families were reunited with their children, and I was just able to be there to help. It was not our church, but it was Woodmont Baptist Church. Um, but the Dickhouse family and the other families are doing their best to get through this. Can you tell us a little bit about Evelyn, please? Um, she's amazing, uh, shining light. Um, I know her family is going to want to tell her story at some point, and right now we're giving them time to, to grieve and to be surrounded by their family and friends. Yeah, I was going to say you can only imagine, but I, actually I can't even imagine. Can anyone understand, do you believe, unless you're dealing with it, what's going on there? Yeah, this has been an awful week for the Nashville community, uh, but Don, the Nashville community is strong. And the faith communities, all of them, Covenant, Woodmont Christian, Woodmont Baptist, all the other churches in Green Hills have stepped up and we're doing everything we can to help these families get through this. And at a time like this, you, you love each other, you support each other, um, you're there for each other, and nobody's walking through this alone. But this has been a tragic and horrible situation. You know, uh, you were, the day of the shooting, you helped families reunite um, with their kids. And, you know, there's so much going on. As you said, it's a horrible situation for the Nashville community. What has the response been? I'm sure there's been a lot of, along with the grief, a lot of outpouring as well. Yes, you can't even imagine uh, the, the support that's being shown, um, not only to the families that have that have lost loved ones, um, like the Dickhouse family, the Scruggs family and others, but also to the families who had children uh, who were in this school behind me and who had to experience this and live through this. Um, uh, they have experienced a lot and they are reeling as well. And so everybody in Nashville is rallying around this community to help get them through this. What do you guys want done there in order for this not to happen again? I think that our children deserve to be able to go to school and come home in the afternoon. And so I think, you know, people try to politicize this, but I think we've got to find a way to do better. Uh, we've got to find a way to do better so that when nine-year-olds go, go to school in the morning, they can come home and be with their families that afternoon. That's what, that's what they want. That's what they deserve. And, um, and, and Don, I don't have all the answers. Um, it's, it, this happens all over our country and we've seen it. Um, but then when it happens in your neighborhood, in your backyard, um, we, we've got to find a way to do better. Yeah, I think um, everyone can agree with that. Clay Stouffer, Senior Minister at Woodmount Christian Church. Thank you and be well. Thank you, Don, for having me on. We want to turn now this morning to the Justice Department's investigation into former President Trump and his actions surrounding January 6th. A federal judge has ordered that former Vice President Mike Pence must testify before a grand jury that's investigating his old boss's role and his efforts to overturn the election. 
This is a significant win for the special counsel, Jack Smith, and a setback for Trump's legal team. On its face, what it means is that Pence must talk to investigators about conversations that he had with Trump leading up to, to that day. But the judge did say that Pence can still decline to answer some questions related to his actions on that day itself, January 6th. That's because he was serving as president of the Senate for the certification of the 2020 presidential election. But whether or not Pence will comply with this or maybe try to appeal this order remains to be seen. We're currently reviewing. But look, I, let me be clear. I, uh, I, I have nothing to hide. Uh, I have a constitution to uphold. I, I upheld the constitution on January 6th. We're currently speaking to our attorneys uh, about uh, the proper way forward. And as I said, we'll have a decision in the coming days. For his part, Pence has already made some of that information public, as many of us know. He wrote it in a book that he published last year. And he wrote that in that New Year's Day phone call that he had with Trump, Trump criticized him for being, quote, too honest when he refused to stop the 2020 election certification. Trump said that hundreds of thousands of people would hate his guts and that, quote, people are going to think you're stupid. In addition to the details of that conversation and others, investigators, we believe, are also likely hoping that Pence will be able to offer some more specifics on Trump's campaign, his pressure campaign against him, and just a clear picture overall of the 45th president's intentions and his mindset at the time. Of course, what we know here in the big picture, Pence is not alone. He is just the latest in a string of former Trump aides who have been ordered to testify, including the former Trump chief of staff, Mark Meadows. He obviously was a central figure in Trump's efforts to reverse the 2020 results. We have that and so many other investigations going on. Donald Trump continues to wield enormous power on Capitol Hill House, as House Republicans pursue his fixations through their investigations. They are routinely updating him on their progress every step of the way. CNN's Melanie Zona joins us now live. There you see her. Melanie, good morning to you. Who on the Hill is keeping Trump in the loop? That's the question. Yeah, well, in some cases, it is committee staff and general counsels. But in many cases, Don, it is lawmakers themselves who are directly speaking to former President Donald Trump. Elise Stefanik is someone that speaks regularly to Trump. She's a member of leadership. She also serves on the Committee on So-Called Weaponization of the Government. And in fact, she called up Trump from the House GOP retreat in Florida last week so she could brief him on everything that House Republicans were doing to investigate the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. Trump is also really close with Jim Jordan. He is the chair of the Judiciary Committee, which is overseeing a number of these key investigations related to Trump. And then, of course, there's Marjorie Taylor Greene. She now serves on the House Oversight Committee. She has been trying to use her platform to relitigate the events of January 6th. And I want to read you what she told me about Trump. She said, I keep him up on everything that we're doing. Sometimes I'm shocked at how he knows all these things. I'm like, how do you know all this stuff? And, Don, we should point out, it is not just Trump. There are multiple lines of communication here, some of his advice. Also speak regularly to members on Capitol Hill. That includes Boris Epstein, a senior Trump advisor, as well as Brian Jack. He was a former Trump administration campaign official. He's also really close with Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Uh, so we do have some examples of how not only are they keeping Trump up to date, but also how they are trying to exert influence. Last month, a Trump lawyer, Joe Tacopina, sent a letter to Jim Jordan and asked him to open an investigation into the Manhattan District Attorney's Office over alleged abuses of power. And, of course, that is exactly what House Republicans did, Don. All right. Melanie, thank you for the update. Thanks. 
All right, federal regulators were grilled on Capitol Hill yesterday when it came to the sudden collapse of SVB. Could executives of two field banks have to pay back their bonuses? Music sounds happy. Conversation may not be for some of them. We're going to discuss it all with Mr. Wonderful himself, Kevin O'Leary. He's back on set. I was just laughing at the More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Today, federal banking regulators will be back on Capitol Hill, this time facing House lawmakers about their handling of the second and third largest bank collapses in U.S. history. Yesterday, before the Senate Banking Committee, they admitted that banks deserve more scrutiny and suggested that the executives of the failed banks might face punishment. This is a textbook case of of bank mismanagement. Uh, the, the risk the bank face, interest rate risk and liquidity risk, those are bread and butter uh, banking issues. The, the firm was uh, quite aware of those issues. They were quite vulnerable uh, to risk, uh, to shocks, and they didn't take the actions necessary. To- Joining us now for his perspective on that hearing, Kevin O'Leary, judge on Shark Tank and chairman of O'Leary Ventures. A lot of buck passing that went on during that hearing yesterday, don't you think? And why, do you, why don't you say what you really feel this time? Okay, Kev. We, Which he never does. Which he well, never. you know, um, were there idiot bankers? Yes. Were they incompetent? Yes. When you have top lawmakers calling you the worst of the worst of the worst, it just doesn't get any worse, and it can't get any worse for those people. But they're not even the mandator story anymore. It doesn't matter. The question becomes... What do we do about regional banking in this country going forward? And that's really what's at debate here, because, you know, if you're a consumer and you're sitting with more than 250,000 in a small bank in some state somewhere and you're watching this play out in Washington with all the grandstanding of hearings, what do you do? Do you feel better or worse? I say you feel worse. I say this is the beginning of the demise of small banks for sure, and that we're going to end up with an oligopoly of very large institutions with an imputed concept that they're backed by the federal government. Not guaranteed, imputed. But you're, you're not advocating for that. You're saying that's just what's going to happen. No, that's I, I'm analysis. not advocating for it. I have come to the conclusion, as many others have that are discussing this, that I do not want to pay for every idiot banker's mistake. It's not on me as a taxpayer. And there are many idiot bankers. I know it's harsh words, but let's put it the way it is. These people were incompetent. And that's what happened. Now, why do I own that problem? Particularly if I don't live in California. I don't care what they do in California. And that's why I'm saying, okay, now that we're learning this, what are we going to do about it? What's the new plan? Can I just ask one thing? Because what you're saying, it goes with this. You're saying that every taxpayer should be asking one question right now. And what is that? What is that question? Do I personally want to guarantee every tiny bank in America? That's the only question we need to answer. Is it yes or is it no? Because you heard Yellen backpedal from that when she proposed the idea that there's going to be a guarantee no matter what the amount is in every single account in America. And the backlash that came through from that was a heavy wave. And she said, well, okay, maybe not. Now we have the same question back. Because what you're saying is different than what the White House is saying, which they're saying taxpayers aren't on the hook for this because it's being paid through the fees. But you're arguing indirectly it is them on the hook for this. The question, though, I think coming out of this is then what are the solutions? Because you heard a lot of the grilling that happened yesterday. You didn't hear a lot of answers about 
how to resolve these issues. All right, let me suggest a solution, okay? Okay. If you're a state, and remember why we had regional banks in the first place, because you as a state said we're different than anywhere else in America, our economy is based on technology. And they do a big service to communities. Right, service to community, a kumbaya thing, know your banker, mortgages for your commercial real estate, maybe your home, and it's just a wonderful feeling that you used to drive your bicycle to the regional bank and go in and take out $10, okay? That's what the emotional tie to a regional bank is. Is any of that reality today? No. It's all done online, so we don't even need that building. However, if you really want to have a regional bank and you feel as a, a governor or senator of your state, then you should own the risk. You should tell the people in your voting constituency but that- why? Why can't you have a mid-sized bank? Why can't you have a community bank and not you, the individual, be the person who's on the hook for the bank's actions? Because you don't need it. That's my whole point. Do you get a credit card from a regional bank? No, you go online, you put your- A lot your of people have credit cards from regional banks. Do you need that? You don't. A lot of people do that. Okay. PPP loans, so, we talked about this last time Caitlin, you were here. They me, were instrumental You're giving in me the people. kumbaya why we should keep this open, but you asked me the tough Not question. kumbaya. Well, would you personally guarantee the bank in New Jersey or New York? Would you personally go on the hook because you want to have a regional bank in these states? Yes or no? I think mid-sized banks are important. I think why? they serve communities. I'm telling you, I'm from a small town in Alabama. When the PPP loans were going out, people don't get online and go to J.P. Morgan if they own a small mom-and-pop business. You or, couldn't go to a uh, bank then. Today, it's different because you basically do everything online. So what I'm arguing is I just I want you to true. take ownership of your Kumbaya thing. If you really want to keep a regional bank it's open, It's not Kumbaya. I'm not it. a sentimental person. Well, I'm saying that I think they are actually instrumental and that they're, they're helpful to mid-sized communities. After okay, we had you on the last okay. time, I heard from people then who agree with that. Then good, you believe that. that, then you eat it. I'm, I'm Mr. Taxpayer in any state. I represent all the rest of us who don't agree with you and are saying, you want that, you eat it. And so if I'm saying, why is there no medium? You know, if you're well, saying, because, I understand what you're saying. Because either you, you make money or you lose money. It's binary. It's black or white. Either you are going to back up that bank because you think it has merit or you don't. I'm telling you, if you take a vote in America today and you go to every single constituency in every city and say, do you want to own the problems of a New York bank or a California bank or a Massachusetts bank or a Minnesota bank? They'll put up their head and say, what does it have to do with me? I go online and get my credit card from somewhere else. This is the debate we're having in America. Now, what we're going to see today on the Hill is just more bank bashing. And by the way, I listen to that testimony as an investor. I am never going to buy a bank stock. Okay. It's over. All right. Let me uh, look. I kind of like going to my local, my hometown, or you where, where I live. No, 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 no. I kind of <laughs> like the idea, but I do understand what you're saying. It's not necessary. It's not needed anymore. It's not Mayberry USA anymore, even though, you know, we have that, you know, we kind of want that nostalgia, right? We want to go to our local. You and, want and it, Don, but you don't want to pay for it. No, no, I'm just saying you in the universal sense. I'm not saying me specifically, but do I like going into the bank and people saying, hey, Mr. Lemon, how are you? Good to see you. I, I, I like that, but I understand what you're saying. It's not necessary anymore. We don't necessarily need it's, that. So I get your point. It's now the time in America to ask Americans, do they want just, to pay for these things? Okay, gotcha. All right, I understand that. But just quickly, do you think that these execs should have their bonuses clawed back? Oh, it's going to get way worse than that for them. They're going to be negligent. In the, it's never good when you're sitting at home on your sofa and you're watching Congress testify with your name that you're a bad manager. I guarantee you they're all having bad hair days. And you know that $3 million that they got the two weeks, the CEO sold his stock? He's already spent that in legal fees. They may want to claw it back, but he is up to his you-know-what in problems because everybody's going to sue the those guys are getting sued back to the Stone Age, but who cares? It doesn't change the big dilemma in America. You know who's not having a bad hair day? Who? 
Kevin O'Leary. Well, I never have a problem. <laughs> That's it. By the way, you guys look terrific and double-breasted. I got to tell you. And we dress alike all the time. At, do we even plan it? No. Nope. We, even... we just show up. They're back. Up. We're having this debate last week. I thought like, about do wearing. Do I go to double-breasted? Wow. Yeah. I was thinking about that. It's been 20 years. I got to tell you something, though. I thought about wearing white pants. And then I said, <laughs> you know what? After Easter, Southerner, and I was like, there's no way Caitlin's going to have on. And there she is. Because I uh, like to break the rules. Yeah. I'm just telling you, you guys look <laughs> fabulous, and I don't give out those accolades very often. All right, you, we'll see what we'll you're wearing next time you're here on set. <laughs> Kevin O'Leary. Thanks, Kevin. Thank you, as always. All right, also this morning, we are tracking a lawsuit. Dominion wants Fox News hosts like Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity to go on the witness stand in their billion-dollar lawsuit against the network. Is it likely, though? We'll tell you and why a judge blasted Fox's legal strategy, telling its lawyers, quote, this isn't a game. We have new insight this morning about who might be called to testify in Dominion voting systems. Right now, $1.6 billion lawsuit against Fox News over their coverage of the 2020 election and what they said about Dominion. There is some overlap in who both sides would actually like to hear from, including hosts like Sean Hannity, Tucker Carlson, Maria Bartiromo. If the trial goes ahead, that's a big if, it would begin soon, April 13th. Joining us now is CNN senior media reporter Oliver Darcy. Uh, Obviously, a big question about what they would hope to get out of these high-profile witnesses and, you know, the likelihood that they actually will be taking the stand. Yeah, I mean, this is this is going to be, it's shaping up to be a very high-profile trial. You have some of the biggest stars over at Fox News who Dominion Voting Systems wants to call to the stand. And Fox News has said they want to put on the stand. And those people include Fox News CEO Suzanne Scott, the president of the network, Jay Wallace, and then hosts like Sean Hannity, Tucker Carlson, Maria Bartiromo, Brett Baer, on and on and it goes. I mean, basically anyone who's anyone at Fox News could get called to the stand in this trial. Dominion obviously has very tough questions for them. I think you're going to see them really rehash a lot of the questions that they um, presented to these uh, commentators and, and journalists uh, during the depositions. Uh, and Fox obviously wants to call them for different reasons. They probably want to put someone like Brett Baer on the stand to say, you know, weren't you calling out the election lies? Um, and, and so it'll be interesting to see how this legal strategy plays out, but shaping up to be a really high profile trial. It's interesting because Dominion had previously, previously asked the judge to force Fox uh, Corporation's chairman Rupert Murdoch to testify during yeah. uh, this trial. What did the judge say about that? Fox Corporation does not want Rupert Murdoch to testify in this trial, probably for obvious reasons. Uh, But the judge is not buying the excuses that have been presented to him. And he said yesterday in court, I'll read to you actually what he said. He said, Mr. Murdoch has claimed that he's traveling and that it's an inconvenience. But I also have people telling me that he's hardly infirm and is able to travel around. I think he recently got engaged on St. Patrick's Day. And he said he looks forward to traveling between his various residences in Montana, New York, and London. And of course, we just saw him at the Super Bowl with Elon Musk. So he is able to travel around. The judge is not buying this excuse. He's saying it looks like he can travel from New York or wherever he is to Wilmington, Delaware for this trial. That was pretty harsh from the judge. Yeah. I think we know what the, how the judge feels about that. Yeah. We'll see if the trial goes forward. Yeah. Oliver? And if it does, again, happening in just a few weeks. Right. Yeah. Thank you, Oliver. So it is a runoff race that is amplifying the divide among Democrats on crime. We're speaking to the candidates vying to be Chicago's mayor. Up next, Paul Vallis is going to join me live. Okay, so this is a live look at the city of Chicago waking up 
right now from our, that's our affiliate WLS in Chicago. A beautiful shot of the lake there. So we're less than a week away from the city's mayoral runoff as concerns about crime and public safety have rattled the nation's third biggest city. The two candidates, both Democrats, defeated Mayor Lori Lightfoot in her reelection bid in February. Paul Vallis is a longtime public schools chief uh, who ran on a tough on crime message. He is facing Brandon Johnson, a Cook County commissioner, backed by progressives and the Chicago Teachers Union. I spoke with Johnson yesterday. This is what he had to say about his opponent. Look, 21 of funders for my opponent come right from the Trump camp. And so I get it that there are Democrats who behave as Republicans, and this is not a moderate. Even the Chicago Police Department, the former chief of staff, indicated that my opponent's plan is just, it's, it's naive and it's misleading. So we wanted to give his opponent an opportunity to respond. Paul Vallis joins me now. <laughs> <laughs> Paul, um, hello well, to you. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. Listen, I do want to get you to respond to what, what Brandon Johnson said yesterday. But first, I need to say that you led Chicago Public Schools 1995-2001 before leaving to run the school system in Philadelphia and New Orleans. What's your reaction to the school shooting in Nashville? Well, you know, it's these school shootings, it's, um, it is just uh, so tragic. And uh, when I was running the school system in Bridgeport, Connecticut, Sandy Hook was our neighboring uh, school district. And, 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 of course, I remember vividly when that shooting occurred because I had a teacher who had a, first gr- who had a child in that first grade classroom. As you know, uh, 20 uh, students were killed and, and I, I, four adults. And uh, there's been 225 shootings, school shootings in the last 10 years, and that's triple the number of shootings the previous 10 years. So clearly, uh, public safety, there has to be comprehensive public safety plans to protect schools, particularly in this age of free-flowing guns. And and I've always been a supporter of of having uh, police officers uh, at the schools at the beginning of the day and at the end of the day, at the very least, particularly in the high schools, to deter active shooters. Yeah. Uh, Listen, there's a a quote from the New York Times of the Kansas City uh, the mayor there said, listen, they've been making the assumptions that they were talking about managing school shootings, making the assumption that they are inevitable in their communities. When you were running schools, did you think that school shootings were inevitable? No, not at all. In fact, we had a 24-7 hotline, and of course, that was before social media. Now you can actually create social media platforms to gather intel. But just through the hotline alone, uh, so many of these shootings are actually telegraphed because people go on social media, they talk about it. It needs to be carefully monitored. And you can put a system in place where you can really uh, uh, provide students with access to, uh, you know, if they hear rumors, if they hear concerns about just not only potential shooters, but young people who are perhaps have a chronic drug addictions, you'll be amazed at what young people will tell you if they can do it uh, safely and securely and what they will tell each other if you're monitoring social media or if you're creating the right social media platform that, that the, the entire school body can access. So there's, there are strategies in place, especially now, to closely monitor the intel and then obviously be prepared to respond and to react to it. Okay, so now I want to get what, uh, the response to Brandon Johnson, what he said on, to me yesterday. And just to remind <laughs> you, he said, look, 21 funders for my opponent come uh, right from the Trump camp. And also, uh, so I get it that they are yeah. Democrats who behave as Republicans, uh, and it is not a moderate. Even the Chicago Public uh, uh, Police Department, the former chief of of staff, indicated that uh, 
his opponent's plan is just that it's naive and it's misleading. That's what he said. I'm paraphrasing there. But what's your, what's your response? Well, you know, my response is, first of all, I'm supported by 26 labor unions. And I also have the endorsement of Senator Dick Durbin and Congressman Bobby Rush, who I know you know well, as well as countless other Democrats. I was also uh, I also ran for as lieutenant governor when Governor Pat Quinn ran for reelection. Of course, that's Democratic Governor Pat Quinn. Uh, also, let me point out that I'm getting support in the business community from the same supporters who have who many who supported Lori Lightfoot and, of course, Mayor Daley and, of course, Rahm Emanuel, obviously all Democrats. But, you know, look, my opponent is a is a paid lobbyist for the Chicago Teachers Union, and he and 80 to 90 percent of his funding comes directly from the Chicago Teachers Union and his affiliates. Uh, you know, as for my uh, the differences between him, him and I on public safety is is real simple. He does. He does not want to fill the eleven hundred police vacancies. He doesn't believe we can fill those vacancies, which is absolutely incorrect. And uh, and his only strategy for addressing the violent crime in Chicago is to promote 200 officers from the street uh, into the detectives bureau. What I have basically said is let's fill the vacancies. And one of the ways you fill the vacancies is you slow the exodus of officers. We've been losing a thousand a year because of poor leadership, terrible strategy, and really the mismanagement of personnel. And uh, we can significantly slow that exodus. I I wanna get to this because you know crime is a big issue, right? Uh, public safety, yes, the major issue really for, for voters in this election. Violence in the city, in your city, spiked in 2020 and 2021. Uh, and shootings and murders have decreased since then. Other crimes, including theft, carjacking, robberies, burglaries, increased last year. Give me your strategy, please. Well, you know, I think what you, well, first of all, you have to return to community-based policing because right now, half of the high-priority 911 calls do not have cars available. So that means when a call comes in, uh, it takes hours instead of minutes. And of course, our, our public transit security is almost all privatized, unarmed guards. Half, the, half those who ride public transit are afraid to ride public transit uh, because of public safety issues. And, and the, uh, the ridership is significantly down. So clearly we need to return to community-based policing. But what we also need to do, just a couple other things, is we, we need to open our schools through the dinner hour weekends, over the holidays and over the summer, and bring community-based and faith-based programs to those schools so our young people, hundreds of thousands, can be fully engaged uh, and occupied. And the second thing we need to do is we need to have a strategy for dealing with returning citizens, those returning from a incarceration okay. because we do very little to find them support. Same as your opponent yesterday. I'm up against the, the clock here, but I also want to give some context yes. to something that you said, and I, I did this with him yesterday because he talked about defunding the police. So I want to ask you about, this is a television interview that you did in 2009. You said that you consider yourself more of a Republican than a Democrat. Uh, what did you mean by that? And if that's so, why is the teachers union not supporting you? Well, you know, let me point out that uh, the past teacher union president is supporting me. And the question pertained to school choice, particularly to charter schools. And the question was asked about charter schools and about and about public school choice. Obviously, uh, uh, my opponent and I have have fundamental differences. But let me point out that in Chicago, I actually only opened 15 charter schools. So that was within the context. But I've been a lifelong Democrat. And of course, I then later ran as Pat Quinn's a running mate for lieutenant governor on the Democratic ticket. So I've always been a lifelong Democrat. I've always voted in the Democratic primary, and I'm supported by Chicago's leading Democrats. Okay, it's because Chicago's heavily Democratic to say you're more of a Republican in Chicago. I mean, 
that's saying a lot. Thank you, Paul Vallis. I appreciate it. Yeah, my great, pleasure. Great to hear from both of them ahead of that election. Um, all right, the album from Amazon's new show, Daisy Jones and the Six, is actually topping music charts. What other made-for-TV bands did the same? Here's a slight clue. It's not Harry Anton's band, but he is here with this morning's number. I was just going to say that I love the sound of your voice. We unraveled a long time ago. We lost and we couldn't let it go. Oh, my God. That is from Amazon Prime's wildly popular series, Daisy Jones and the Six. It's an adaptation of the Taylor Jenkins Reid best-selling novel about a fictional 70s rock band. It has received very real accolades for the album that was created for the series, titled Aurora. Our CNN senior data reporter, Harry Enten, is here. You've been looking at the numbers. I mean, people love this. Yeah, they do. So this morning's number is... One, because Daisy Jones and the Six's Aurora album, a fictional television band, hit number one on the iTunes chart earlier this March. And I'll point out that on the Billboard charts, look at this, for emerging artists, that album was number one, soundtrack number one, and perhaps my favorite, vinyl, of course, because that would make sense based upon when the show took place, it was number four. So quite the popular band, despite the fact that they ain't real, folks. It must be hard to swallow if you are a real band and you're like, this other band for a TV show is it, is number one. It does sound like, ah, oh, gosh, what's her name? Uh, I can't think of the song, but it sounds like it's, it's also, it evokes Fleetwood Mac. Correct. Stevie Nicks. It, 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 that's exactly right. And, you know, I just want to talk about other fictional bands here and their big songs because this was a big discussion between Caitlin, Don, and myself because apparently I did not choose the, the correct Zach. fictional ones. I chose Alvin and the Chipmunks, Christmas, Don't Be Late, The Archies, Sugar, Sugar, The Blues Brothers, Soul Man. All of them were top 20 songs on the Billboard Hot 100, but I'm told that there are some other favorites that What's I might have What's the top missed. fictional band? Uh, the top fictional band? How about the Monkees? How about the Monkees, right? They were, I prefer them to the Beatles. They were a 1960s fictional TV show band that became real. In early 70s. In early 70s. Three number one songs, including I'm a Believer, and four number one albums. But I didn't include Hannah Montana on here, which I'm told by one of our producers was a big thing that I didn't, didn't And mention. almost famous, Stillwater. I love them. I love them as well. I was watching Almost and Famous. A Star is Born, Lady Gaga, Bradley Cooper. Ah, yes, that was a good film as well. You can see They're that there's some ma massive disagreements between us on this. You know, I think that's the song that reminds me of. I know it's, it's weird. I found love, love in the nick of time. What's her name? I love her. I can't. I'm having a senior moment. Uh, we would Don, you sometimes say it's, things, and I don't. Scared to run out of oh, time. Oh, very nice. Ooh. You that's should sing at my wedding. Of. Yeah. You're invited. Okay. As if you're ever going to get married. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> Miracles do occur. That seemed to be an announcement, maybe. <laughs> That's, yeah, do you want to tell us something? No. I, do, I, I, did, I love the monkeys, though. You have a, this debate about the monkeys versus the Beatles. Yeah. I prefer them to the Beatles. <laughs> it's literally the title. It's oh. so great. It, oh, right, maybe Harry I should look. <laughs> maybe I should wear my glasses. <laughs> Arianton. Thanks Thank for you. watching, everybody. CNN Newsroom starts right after this break. We'll see you tomorrow. I can't believe you put that in. That's it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com audio or in your favorite podcast app.
Thanks for listening. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.